Welcome to episode one of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. This is a new podcast from National Review featuring me, Charles C.W. Cook. Not a particularly subtle name, I agree, but easy to Google or Bing if that's your thing. This is the, I won't say replacement because it's not a replacement. Uh, This is the successor, the follow-on, the sequel to Mad Dogs and Englishmen. If you were a Mad Dogs and Englishman listener, and like Admiral Stockdale, you're wondering what you're doing here, you've been redirected uh, through some 301 magic. You have been sent from the old Mad Dogs feed to this feed. Uh, All of the episodes of Mad Dogs and Englishman are up on National Review. If you're a member of NR+, you can get them all. Uh, But for now, this feed will feature the latest 10 episodes of this podcast, the Charles C.W. Cook podcast, uh, which will feature me and not Kevin, because Kevin's gone over to the dispatch to join Jonah and David French. I think he'll probably have uh, his own podcast or at least appear on those. Um, But uh, for now, it will be me. But worry not, it won't just be me. What I want to do with this podcast is in a sense what I've been doing with my weekend newsletter, which you can sign up for on my website at charlescwcook.com. You just put your email address in and you'll get it on Sundays, most weeks. Uh, What I do with that is try to combine some of the politics chat of the sort that you heard for years on Mad Dogs and Englishmen with other things in which I'm interested Golf carts, music, roller coasters, technology, uh, airports. And if you remember, on Mad Dogs, we often put off talking about politics or current affairs for quite a long time. And we would instead talk about cars or guns or the city of Albuquerque. Um, I'd like to keep that within this show. There is always a risk that politics consumes everything. And one of the reasons that I'm a classical liberal, libertarian or conservatarian or conservative or whatever you want to call it, uh, is that I think politics should not do that. Politics is extremely important. It's especially important when the government's big and there are people out there who want to take over the world. But it's not everything. It's an enabling mechanism. It's a framework. It's an exoskeleton. And it's there to facilitate everything else. And if we become so obsessed with just politics that we ignore uh, all of the great blessings that we enjoy in this country, then we will not only become cramped and narrow, but we'll forget why it is that we're supposed to care about politics in the first place, which is to enable human liberty and human flourishing. So I I don't want to lose sight uh, of all of those topics that uh, Kevin and I used to use as procrastination tools. Um, But equally, this will be a political podcast. So what I want to do with it, uh, as I say, is something 
akin to what I've done with the newsletter, which is to combine that sort of politics with other sections, maybe book reviews, interviews with authors or musicians or roller coaster engineers or golf cart designers or what you will. Have some brief sections on what music I'm listening to or TV shows I'm watching or movies uh, I'm watching. I'll probably get someone to come help me with the movie sections because as you may have noticed, uh, I'm a bit of a movie idiot. I like most movies. I don't see many of the subtleties in movies. And uh, I, I often need to read the synopsis or have somebody who understands movies better than I do explain them to me. But that's fine. I also want to start a section called, again, imaginatively, Q&A. I do get quite a lot of emails, uh, and I can't always reply to them all. But I thought perhaps I'll reply to some of them on the podcast. So if you have a good question, or in fact, if you have an absolutely atrocious question, those are probably the two categories that would make uh, the best radio, uh, then do send it over to ccook, C-C-O-O-K-E, at nationalreview.com, and I'll, uh, I'll do my best to answer it. And before we move on, uh, I just want to say thanks to everyone who did listen to Mad Dogs and Englishmen. I really have received an extraordinary uh, number of notes uh, by email, by uh, Twitter direct messages, by Carrier Pigeon, from people who listened, many of whom had been listening for 10 years. Uh, it, it's, it's odd doing a podcast or a radio show or even, in, in most cases, a, a TV hit because you just talk to the wall. And I'm sitting here right now in the little studio I have in my house, and I'm staring at a clock in Pro Tools that's just going up and up and up and up and up. You very rarely get any feedback. Um, occasionally, people would come up in airports and say, are you Charles Cook from Mad Dogs and Englishman? Uh, but mostly it, it was silence. And then the show ended and my you know, email server could barely keep up with the mail coming in from people saying that they'd listened all of those years. So I, I just want to sort of reciprocate and say thank you for that. Anyhow, on today's first episode, we're going to talk to Troy Senek, who is the author of a new book on Grover Cleveland, not a president we hear a great deal about. Uh, and in fact, uh, Troy told me the reason he wrote this book was because he noticed there was a hole where uh, the Grover Cleveland book should be. And I'm going to check in with Dan McLaughlin, who has some thoughts about Aaron Judge's 61st home run, which Judge hit uh, last night. But before that, when I was thinking about doing this podcast, wondering what it would look like. I listened to a whole bunch of other people who ostensibly have podcasts on their own, even if they have a guest every week. That guest is not ever present. And of course, this took me to, to Joe Rogan. And it occurred to me that we live in a strange world. <laughs> I don't know how long ago it was, perhaps six months, a year. I do remember writing about it. But there was a point at which getting rid of Joe Rogan seemed to be the single most important agenda item 
for progressives, culturally. This wasn't just a preference. We weren't talking here about a guy that some people didn't like, which is fine. That some people didn't want to listen to, which is fine. That some people wish didn't exist, which in some sense is fine. We were talking here about a guy that had to be taken down, that had to be removed from the airwaves or the ethernet. Joe Rogan, a year ago, was a threat to America, to democracy, to public health. Joe Rogan was killing people, is what we were told. And Spotify, by hosting him, was complicit. People took their music off Spotify to make a point. Spotify's employees made it clear that they felt unsafe working for a company that platformed Joe Rogan. Every major newspaper columnist in the country who was slightly left of center seemed to pile in and explain why Joe Rogan was not just distasteful or naive, but had to be obliterated. And then it went away. Then it disappeared. Just like that. How? How is that possible? I I think I miss this gene. I don't think I have this in me. Where one minute you can be laser focused on this existential threat, so called. And the next minute you've moved on to something else. It's not as if anything happened to Joe Rogan. He's still there. He's still producing podcasts. He's still asking open questions and refusing to censor the answers. He's just as influential as he ever was. But apparently it now doesn't matter. And I think this tells us a couple of things. First, it tells us that so many of the freakouts that we see, the panics that we see, are transient. They are just that. They are mobs, flash mobs even. And despite the eschatological language, they're not that important. And the second thing it tells us is that if you just say no, if you just refuse to buckle if you just tell these people to go away, they will. I wrote about this recently in the New York Post. There is no plan B. There's nothing there. They don't have a second act. They make their claim. They use their language. Unsafe is a key one. And they hope that the people they're talking to are conditioned to respond to that language with action. And in some cases, they are. Especially, it seems, on college campuses, on newspaper editorial boards, and in some corporations. But if you don't respond to it, if you just say, go to hell, we're not interested, 
they go away and they move on to the next thing. And, and all of that energy either completely dissipates or is packed up and transferred to the next person. So in a sense, I, I'm starting the first episode of this show with a plea from a fairly outspoken free speech guy to anyone who finds this sort of behavior distasteful to understand, to internalize, to accept and acknowledge that the people that we are all supposed to be scared of, they don't have an army. They don't have a navy or an air force. They don't have the police. They can make demands, and those demands can be rejected. They're not a majority. In fact, increasingly, they are at the margins. The only power they have is the power that we think they have and therefore give them. The Joe Rogan incident should be hugely instructive as to how this all works and what we have to do to uh, repel it. Which brings me to Grover Cleveland. How's that for an awkward segue? I'm joined by Troy Senek, who's a former speechwriter for President George W. Bush uh, and the author of A Man of Iron, The Turbulent Life and Improbable Presidency of Grover Cleveland. Troy, welcome to the first episode of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. Thank you so much, Charlie. It's a real privilege to be with you, especially on this episode. Absolutely. Well, you better hope it goes well. Otherwise, you might change your mind. But, uh, <laughs> so a few years ago, uh, I had this friend who called his band, it was a punk band, Rutherford B. Hayes. And he was constantly asked, what is that? Who, who is Rutherford B. Hayes? You know, I think probably Grover Cleveland is more famous than Rutherford B. Hayes, if just for the city, even though I know it's not named for him. Right. But if you ask the average American, tell me about Rutherford B. Hayes or tell me about Grover Cleveland, I think they might have about the same level of knowledge. They might get the same blank looks. So tell me why Grover Cleveland? To say that Grover Cleveland is slightly more distinctive than Rutherford B. Hayes is correct. And also the narcissism of small differences, right? I mean, we're not, we're not talking about much. Um, there were there were three reasons that I wanted to write a book about Grover Cleveland, who has not been written about much for the last several decades. I mean, there was one really good and kind of authoritative book on Grover Cleveland, and it's about 90 years old. So the first was just as a matter of kind of historical hygiene, uh, insofar as we have had 45 presidents of the United States. Cleveland's the one who throws the numbering off, of course, because he's elected non-consecutively and so tends to get counted as 22 and 24. But out of those 45, there are only 14, you know, less than a third, who've done a full eight years. And if we were to tick through that list, virtually everyone on it is somebody who is a household name, even if you're not a history buff, even if you're not a presidential buff, except for Grover Cleveland. So I just thought that was a weird lacuna, for one. For two, uh, I thought that his was an important legacy to bring back for anybody who considers themselves 
a classical liberal or classical liberal adjacent, whether you're a, a libertarian or a limited government conservative or even sort of a neoliberal Democrat, because Grover Cleveland, uh, much like Calvin Coolidge, and I was kind of trying to do what Amity Schles was did with her book about Calvin Coolidge, has this legacy that grafts very nicely onto that that is just sort of forgotten about. And even though he's only 30, 40 years prior to Coolidge, he just feels so much more antique that you know, even relative to a figure like Coolidge, he gets a lot less exposure. And then the third reason was I thought even if you're allergic to his ideology, even if you're allergic to the way that he thought about the world, his is a story worth telling and a story worth remembering because his career is in many ways a, a rebuke to political cynicism. Um, he moves up very, very quickly. If you find Grover Cleveland in the year 1881, which is the year that he turns 44 years old, he's a somewhat obscure lawyer in Buffalo, New York. He had held one elected office about a decade prior as the sheriff of Erie County, where Buffalo is. And in the course of the next three years, he goes from mayor of Buffalo to governor of New York to president of the United States. And this is all predicated on the fact that he is seen as an incorruptible figure at a time when American politics is at maybe its all-time high watermark in terms of corruption. And he is a figure who is resisting both the corruption in the regnant Republican Party at the time, but also within his own Democratic Party. He's, he's weirdly, more than maybe any president with the exception of George Washington, a, a sort of president without a party. Uh, he just does not think in partisan terms. His appeal to the electorate is always based on his Democratic base, but also a significant chunk of, of reformist Republicans. And this is a guy who was not deeply, especially at the start of his career, deeply ambitious, trying to climb the ladder. It was just the way that this temperament interacted with the displeasure the voters had about the way American politics was being conducted at the time. And it's sort of a remarkable story on those terms, I think even to people who don't share his classical liberalism. And that's what you mean by improbable president in the subtitle. Yeah, I, I think that's right. It, if Grover Cleveland, if you move him 10 years one direction or the other, I don't think we ever know his name. I, I think it is a function of this kind of personality, this kind of ideology, this kind of temperament emerging at the moment where the public had sort of hit an inflection point on this. Because otherwise, I just don't think this is not a guy who he doesn't have a conventional politician's personality at all. I mean, I say in the book that I think the more likely career trajectory for him have been to have been a judge because he has this um, very sort of stoic, principled detachment from politics. Everything is a question of first principles for him, which, by the way, gets him in a lot of political trouble too. But one of the things that I think classical liberals in particular will cotton to about him is, you know, if, if you really take classical liberalism seriously in terms of how it interacts with actual American politics as practice. It's very hard to carry out in office, right? It's hard in a way that progressivism isn't insofar as you're having to disappoint a lot of people. And Grover Cleveland says this, particularly during his first term, I'm saying no to people all day. And I'd be only too happy at a personal level to say yes. But he's constantly fighting intrusions on the treasury. He's constantly keeping people that he at some level likes on a personal level from government jobs. He is constantly trying to stand up 
for the principal instead of sort of grease the grease the skids the way that you normally would in American politics. Do these little these little deviations from principle that help to sort of lubricate the political system, and he just doesn't do them, which is one of the things that makes him so remarkable. All right, so I am a classical liberal, and my ideal president, I often joke, is somebody who would be elected, and then I wouldn't hear from them again unless there was a war. (laughs) You have a line in the intro of the book, and you write, that Cleveland is not of the variety that sends sculptors racing for their marble. Now, I love this. I think it's a great line, but I also love this because that's who I want to be president. I think we have created this, what George Will calls Caesaropapism, and that Cleveland doesn't fit that mold appeals to me. But I suppose uh, my question is, to what extent... Cleveland should get the credit for that because you also point out in the introduction that the way we view the modern presidency is not how the presidency is imagined in the constitution and it's not how the presidency was regarded by the electorate for a lot of American history including much of the late 19th century. So right. Let's take Grover Cleveland and stipulate here is a classical liberal. Here's a guy who's against corruption. Here is somebody who is not intervening all over the place. But how much of the credit does he get for that as somebody of, of principle and restraint? And how much of it is just that he happened to be alive in the late 19th century? Well, that's a very good question. And I think I think my answer is 50-50, because it is certainly it is certainly the case, right, that this kind of behavior is much more in keeping with the conception of the presidency at the time. This is a pretty weak period in the history of the American presidency, um, sort of rivaled only by the period between Jackson and Lincoln for a lot of the same reasons. Um, it's very high turnover, for one thing, in the presidency at that point. But Cleveland is materially different than, for instance, Benjamin Harrison, who comes right after him, or um, Chester Arthur, who's before him, or our our friend Rutherford B. Hayes, right? And so it, it is certainly the degree of difficulty of carrying out the presidency this way is not as high in the 1880s or 1890s as it would be today. I mean, you you read my book and almost all of this stuff would be incomprehensible today. It is such a restrained notion of the presidency. But Cleveland's is still more restrained than the people who are around him, partially because, I mean, I should locate him in sort of the context of the times, right? He gets elected for the first time in 1884, loses re-election in 1888, an election in which he won the popular vote, by the way, but he lost the Electoral College. And he comes back in 1892. One of the things that's important to understand about this, again, getting to the improbability of this entire trajectory, he is the first Democrat to be elected president since James Buchanan in 1856. And there's not another one uh, until Woodrow Wilson in 1912. So he is surrounded by Republican presidents in an era in which the the Republican Party of the two is the party that is much less committed to notions of of limited government. So this is part of the reason for why he is different than the ones that 
encircle him. And he's also, he's really the last Democratic president who comes out of a sort of Jeffersonian classical liberal posture. And that strain within the Democratic Party is starting to get eclipsed during his presidency. I mean, the story of Cleveland's presidency, especially his second term, but this is present during his first term too, is largely about him fighting this rearguard action amongst his fellow Democrats, particularly in Congress, as the populism that is eventually going to uh, take the shape of, of William Jennings Bryan, who's the nominee three of the next four elections after Cleveland leaves office, as that is growing in the party and all the action, all the energy in the Democratic Party of that era is with is with them. So I, I you know I get asked quite a bit about parallels between Cleveland and Trump because of the possibility of Trump running a third time. And I always tell people that the political dynamic is actually sort of the opposite insofar as if you want to consider Trump a revolutionary coming into a, a limited government party and moving it in a populist direction, uh, Cleveland is the opposite. He's, he's a counter-revolutionary. He is the last one holding out for the old-fashioned classical liberalism of the Democratic Party as it is starting to wane at the end of the 19th century. Here's a corollary question then. You mentioned the successor as Democratic nominee, William yeah. Jennings Bryan. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Woodrow Wilson, who's the next Democrat to win. They do not have a Cleveland-esque approach. Right. I asked you before about Cleveland and then about the time in which he was operating. Now, another, I think, misconception, and it's fascinating in the book to learn this. Uh, I, I didn't know the extent of this. Is that the late 19th century was this wasteland in which nothing happened. Right. Uh, right. But you point out that actually it's not that there weren't uh, crises. It's not that there weren't moments that, you know, had the president at that point had a Wilsonian or Rooseveltian outlook would have prompted action. It's that Cleveland takes a different view that, than they would have. Um, I wonder if you can set the stage f for uh, Cleveland's presidency. Uh, what happened uh, during the first one? What happened during the period where he was out of office that four years? What happened during the second one? Because th this was not uh, a calm water period. No, and it always makes me laugh. There's this famous line from The Simpsons that you see in, in GIF form on Twitter sometimes with uh, Mrs. Krabappel, the teacher. I think they cut to her mid-scene reading a textbook to the children and saying Grover Cleveland's second term was, if anything, even less interesting than his first term. <laughs> so that's how deeply <laughs> yeah. this is embedded you know, in the, in the popular psyche. It, it's not true. Um, the second term actually is, is quite turbulent. The first one, not as much, but... Uh, to the point you're making and to the point I, I make in the in the book, you know, I say that this era in American history, oddly, is less familiar to us than more distant ones like the founding generation or the Civil War, just because the issues at play during those eras are so much more intelligible to a modern sensibility. So let me sort of split this into two camps, which is there's a number of persistent issues that um, – the dog Cleveland throughout his two terms, uh, some of which rise to crisis level, uh, some of which don't. But it, it's an interesting filter through which to think of this era because of how remote 
um, the, the significance of them seems now. So what does Grover Cleveland focus on? In his first term, there is a, a huge effort towards civil service reform, which had started with Chester Arthur, trying to basically dismantle a good chunk of the spoiled system in the executive branch, trying to professionalize the civil service a little bit. This seems incredibly antique, right? Now, when we talk about the civil service, it's the fact that the protections are too expansive and you get you know, non-cooperative uh, federal officials or federal officials who are actively trying to undermine an administration in there. You can't get rid of them. This is a totally different world we're talking about. Cleveland spends an awful lot of time, particularly in the first term, vetoing bills. This is one of the few things that political junkies may know about him. He vetoes 414 bills in his first term, which is not only a large number in and of itself, but it's also more than the previous 21 presidents combined. And these vetoes are largely concentrated on military pensions for union veterans, which you think, well, that seems antique too. Who, who the hell cares? Well, at this point in American history, this is the second biggest expenditure of the federal government, only behind interest on the debt. So not in terms of raw numbers, but in terms of its significance to the federal budget, this is the equivalent of talking about entitlement spending today. And then in both terms, he's leading an effort, which he, he accomplishes in his second term, not to the degree he'd like to, but to reduce tariff rates. I remember as a kid taking American history classes and never understanding why the tariff was so central. This is one of the only things you'd learn about this era in American history. Well, the reason is because the tariff at this point in time, this is the equivalent of arguing over uh, individual income tax rates today. This is where all the revenue comes from. There's a little bit from uh, excise taxes on liquor and things like that, some land sales in the West, but this is the whole ballgame when you're talking about the federal budget. So all these things that don't really translate to our Arab. And then you have these huge crises. So in the second term, there is a, a huge economic downturn that we now know as the Panic of 1893. At the time, it's known as the Great Depression. And this really comes down to, without getting into the minutia of 19th century monetary policy, this really comes down to a fight over how much silver is going to be in the country's money supply because the populist wing of the Democratic Party sees the inflation that this will generate as a as a boon to Westerners and Southerners, many of whom have you know moved out onto the frontier and are pretty highly leveraged in setting up their, their farms or their businesses or whatnot. Again, hard for us to understand now because all of this has been annexed by the Federal Reserve, but you've got this huge economic downturn. You've got the Pullman strike, another thing that people may remember, you know, two sentences about from their high school history textbook, which is this labor unrest that starts in Chicago out of a rail strike, but really gets to the point of shutting down commerce throughout a significant part of the country. And this is 1894. So we're just under 30 years removed from the end of the Civil War. And it's easy to forget how raw um the fears of the Civil War still were, insofar as there is a serious concern throughout the country during the Pullman strike that we are about to have another Civil War, and it's going to be fought on class lines. And this is not sort of idle journalistic um, speculation. This Eugene Debs, who is one of the parties to this, at one point sort of actively threatens this. Plus, you have uh, the move to attempt to annex Hawaii, which Cleveland inherits 
in his second term. It is done right before he comes back into office, which he resists because he thinks that the American ambassador has essentially been proxy to a, a coup there. Um, he's basically right about this. So there are all these things that he could have, if he had played a different role in them, like if he was the American president who was responsible for us acquiring Hawaii, as opposed to the one who was trying to stop it, that would be an intelligible legacy in the year 2022. Um, if he was the one who took the country off the gold standard and was this you know, crusader to remedy the inequality of the Gilded Age, we would understand that. Like That'd be coherent to us now. And just one minor thing I'll mention, when he comes into office the first time, he inherits from Chester Arthur uh, a treaty that would have built a transoceanic canal across Nicaragua. This would have been the Panama Canal before the Panama Canal. Certainly, as we know from Teddy Roosevelt, a legacy that will stick with you. And he won't accept it. He rejects it because he doesn't, he can't tolerate the idea, this was the standard by which the agreement was met, that Nicaragua would be an American protectorate. And he's, he's an anti-imperialist and he has a, a, a very sort of founding era notion of American autonomy in foreign affairs. So all these things, he could have done these things differently and his legacy would be much clearer to us. But he doesn't not do them because he's inept. He doesn't do them because he thinks they're wrong. And this ends up sort of consigning him to a, a relatively minor role in American history as understood today. Well, that actually neatly brings me to my last question, which is how you would sell Grover Cleveland, if you were his advanced man, to a modern left-leaning American. I mean, you, you, you've, you've sold me. Right? I'm, a, I'm a classical <laughs> liberal. So was he. Uh, I start most of my political uh, inquiries from you know, classical liberal or, or right of center principle. Right. So did he. Uh, I like humble executives. Uh, I am also uh, suspicious of America uh, acquiring protectorates. So, you know, across the board, I'm probably a, <laughs> a Grover Cleveland guy, or I would have been if I had been around. You say in the book that he didn't have either time one of the greatest presidencies, but he may have been one of the greatest presidents. So if you were selling that notion to someone on the other side of the aisle, how, how, how would you sell it? You know, he doesn't graft cleanly onto, certainly onto modern progressivism, but I do think that there are aspects of Grover Cleveland's career and aspects of his personality that would probably be appealing to your you know, your median left of center voter insofar as it, it's interesting. There are all these things that they seem, um, they seem provocative or a little strange filtered through 130, 140 years of history. Um, for instance, the idea that like Cle Cleveland thought that reducing tariffs was the populist position, right? It's just backwards of how we think of it now, but because he thought that the tariffs were very much a vehicle for corporate collusion, Right? The tariffs end up going to the companies who do the best job at, at lobbying. And there is this kind of anti, I wouldn't call it an anti-corporate strain, but I think a lot of people on the left would be sympathetic to this. He is as deeply suspicious. This is how thoroughgoing the classical liberalism is. He is as deeply suspicious of special government favors or appropriations for business interests 
as he is for what he sees as sort of excessive social welfare spending. And there's a long line throughout his career of you can see this kind of, there are times when he he actually sounds sort of like a, a quite modern sort of left of center thinker on some of these economic issues just because he is so twisted into knots by the idea of the um, of the corporate community get, getting these kinds of, of favors from the federal government. And he is also, again, he, he finds the roots of all of this in government intervention. So he's not calling for more, a bigger role for Washington, but he is really quite concerned with uh, economic inequality and talks about it in terms that are sort of consonant with how a lot of people on the left talk about it now. He is, he is really concerned by how much corporate power is being amassed, particularly in urban centers. And you see repeated instances of him saying things along the lines of sort of the working class being treated as cannon fodder, you know, that these people are not being treated as, as humans, as individuals, they're just grist for the mill. And, um, and then the other, the other factor, of course, I think is the, the approach on foreign policy. I mean, this book is not uncritical of Grover Cleveland um, on a lot of fronts. I obviously have a, a kind of affection for him, but towards the end of the book, when I get into foreign policy, largely this controversy over Hawaii, but there was also a ter- territorial dispute uh, in Venezuela where the U.S. was trying to weigh in uh, with Britain, trying to expand its, its holdings there. And Cleveland, this is a part of him I find unappealing, but uh, a lot of people on the modern left may find appealing. You can see Cleveland and, and a man named Richard Olney, who by this point was his secretary of state, had previously been his attorney general. You can see them sort of prefiguring the Wilsonian internationalism of the early 20th century, insofar as they are they are writing these somewhat supercilious letters back and forth, talking about how warfare is is outmoded, and that the future is going to be a world dominated by arbitration and international enlightenment. It's a lovely vision in a lot of ways, but it is just so out of step with the world that they're actually encountering. But if you have a weakness for that kind of Wilsonian conception of how international affairs should run. That's a thing that I think somebody else, somebody on the left could also take from Cleveland's legacy. All right. Well, how did the uh, listeners get hold of this book? When's it on sale? How much does it cost? Where can they find it? Uh, the book had just came out. It came out September 20th. You can get it uh, Amazon or anywhere books are sold for about 30 bucks. You can also get it uh, as an ebook, or you can get the audio book, which has an introduction by me and then a, uh, is read by a, a wonderful actor. And it's called A Man of Iron. The Turbulent Life and Improbable Presidency of Grover Cleveland. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Troy. I really appreciate it. I, uh, I'm about halfway through the book myself, and um, I wish we had more time to talk about Grover Cleveland, about whom, I must confess, I knew pretty much nothing except that people who were broadly aligned with me ideologically would tell me, you know, he was the last really good Democrat president. <laughs> he was the one we want. <laughs> right. Thank you, Charlie. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, I did not intend to have a sports section on the first episode of this podcast, but last night, Aaron Judge finally hit his 61st home run of the season. And in so doing, he tied uh, Roger Maris, who formerly held the American League record for the most home runs hit in a season, and unleashed a whole bunch of of hot takes 
because while the American League record is 61, the National League record uh, is 73. And yet there is an asterisk next to that record uh, because the man who holds it, Barry Bonds, was accused of using steroids. And in fact, many of the people who set National League records that are higher than 61 are also accused of using steroids. They all came within what's referred to as the steroid era. So I thought I would ask Dan McLaughlin, who is a baseball nut, baseball crank is his Twitter handle, uh, to explain what has happened and then ask a few questions about how we should see these records and contextualize Aaron Judge's achievement. Dan is in the airport in Los Angeles, so you'll probably hear some baggage announcements behind him. Maybe they'll start arguing like in the movie Airplane. Um, Apologies for that, but that's just where he is today and where I could get hold of him. So Dan, Judge finally did it. Yeah, so the the American League record, uh, which is also the Yankee Club record, is 61. Um, And... Is set by Roger Maris in 1961. And of course, that was controversial at the time because, you know, Babe Ruth had set the record, not only set the record, but set it repeatedly uh, at 29 in 1919, 54 in 1920, 59 in 1921, and then finally 60 in 1927. Um, and so it was controversial when Maris uh, broke the record in part because the, the commissioner, Ford Frick, was a, you know, an old Ruth guy. Uh, and he, and the season 61 was the first season when they extended the schedule from 154 to 162 games, which is not actually all that novel. I mean, it had been 154 since roughly about 1905 or so. Um, uh, but you know, the schedule had lengthened repeatedly over the decades before that, but you know, in baseball, as in so many things, uh, a couple of decades uh, seems like a tradition. Um, so Frick uh, issued a ruling while Maris was closing in on the record saying, well, you know, if uh, if he doesn't get there in 154 games, we're going to stick an asterisk on it. It's not a real record. Um, and so, you know, Maris didn't get there in 154, but he did get there in 162. And so you know, there was always kind of an, an odor of illegitimacy around that, even though he, you know, he did exactly what Babe Ruth did, which was he played, you know, he played all the games that they scheduled and he hit as many home runs as he could, uh, you know, and did so fair and square uh, and possibly fairer and square than Ruth, who may have, uh, you know, who was not averse to bending the rules and was at minimum su- uh, suspected of corking his bat, I think, during his uh, uh his career, among other other shenanigans that uh, Ruth may have gotten up to that never got caught. Um, but, you know, there the record stood until 1998 when, when Mark McGuire hit uh, and Sammy Sosa both cleared uh, 61 and, and McGuire got to 70. Uh, and then a couple of years later, or well, in, in 2001, uh, Barry Bonds got to 72. Um, and so all of those records, Sosa, I think, cleared 61 homers, I think, three times in four years. Uh, but all of those records uh, were set by guys who were, uh, as we might say, credibly accused or in some cases more than credibly accused or proven uh, to have used steroids that were, 
uh, illegal under the law and or illegal under the game's rules. Um, and so there, there's, there's a much stronger odor of illegitimacy about those records. Um, and that, you know, that's why people who believe the judge is clean, uh, and he probably is clean. We don't know, but there's, there's more steroid testing these days than there was in 98 or 02. Um, you know, they, they, they regard this as now, you know, if he gets past six, you know, now he's going to be the legitimate, uh, record holder, uh, and not Bonds, not McGuire, not Sosa. All right. So, so let me ask, which of the following arguments, if any, do you find persuasive? These are all the things that baseball fans are saying to explain why this person or that person doesn't or shouldn't have the record. Number one, Babe Ruth's record doesn't count because the leagues weren't integrated. Number two, Babe Ruth's record doesn't count because he clearly corked his bat. Number three, Roger Maris's record doesn't count because he played more games than those who had come before him. We, we touched on that in passing. Number four, Barry Bonds' record doesn't count, and indeed many of the records of that era don't count because they cheated using steroids. Yeah, and the other one you can add to that um, is that, you know, pitching is more watered down, um, typically in the first season when baseball expands, um, which it did in 1961, the year Maris hit the 61, um, which it did again uh, in 98, the year that uh, Maguire and Sosa broke the record, um, you know, that the, the, the year that they added uh, the last two franchises. Um and there's a reason why that happens, right? Because when when they expand the leagues, they free up hitters from the minor leagues who maybe, you know, can field and can't hit or can hit but can't field. But the pitchers who get added to the rosters are just guys who are trapped in the minors because they weren't good enough at pitching. Um, but all of that is part of the conditions of the game. To me, all of it is, all of it, the, the length of the schedule, um, you know, and, and even the fact that, that these guys have broken or bent rules is part of the competitive conditions of the game. I mean, I, I'm kind of a hidden law guy in that sense, in that, um, you know, sort of the hidden law of the game, I suppose, is that it ain't cheating if you get away with it, if you don't get caught. Uh, and these guys, by and large, did not get caught and punished by the proper authorities uh, while they were rolling up these records. So, you know, they didn't, uh, you know, I mean, if you look at, at somebody like, you know, Manny Ramirez or somebody that, you know, got suspended for using steroids, uh, you know, Bonds didn't. Uh, and and you, there's no kind of take backsies uh, in the game because, you know, the integration of the game, all of these things, they were, they were, that's the conditions of the time. The players don't have control over it. Uh, or in the case of bending the rules, they you know, they get away with whatever they can get away with. And, and, you know, cheating has been part of the game as long as the game has been around. All right. So, so last question is, which of those arguments, if any, do you think will stick in the public imagination? Last night, Judge ties the record with Maris in the American League. But of course, there's the National League record that's higher than 61. Judge is not going to get 
to that National League record, the, the chances of him hitting another 12, 13 to beat it before the end of the regular season are almost nil. And he himself has said, Aaron Judge has said, that he considers Barry Bonds' record to be the canonical number. He said he remembers sitting up late and watching it happen. So even though there are people who say Bonds doesn't count because he was on steroids, I mean, Aaron Judge says, yeah, it does. Do you think that will essentially shut down the chatter? I mean, I, I think it's, yeah, 73. It's, it's, it, I mean, it, 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 it being, being the current record, I think, um, uh, you know, I think it's admirable for Judge to do that. It's honorable for Judge to do that. Um, but, you know, uh, nobody made him the judge of this, so to speak. Uh, so I don't think, you know, I think people are going to make up their own minds regardless of what Aaron Judge says. Um, I mean, look, you know, if, if you want to say, uh, you know, he's he's certainly he's hit more home runs than anybody else hit clean. That's going to be totally fair to say. But, you know, the record is the record. Uh, and, and, you know, we don't really do this with other baseball records even. It's just the home run record where we have this argument. Why is that? Um, I mean, there's there's a variety of... Compa- I mean, you know, I think steroids have an obvious connection to physical strength. Uh, and therefore to hitting home runs. I mean, I don't have any doubt that steroids help these guys. Um, you know, there are people who are kind of in denial about that, but I don't really doubt that. Um, but, you know, I mean, baseball has all kinds of records that were set under the ideal competitive conditions for that particular record. Uh, and that's just, you know, that's just the way it is. That's just the way it's always been. All right, Dan. Well, that's just the way it is, is a famous way of signing off any segment. So I will let you go and get your bags and escape the baggage claim lady and drive up into what I imagine is much, much better weather than uh, I have here in Florida. And that's about all we have time for this week. So thank you so much for joining me on the first episode of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. Thank you to my guests this week, who are Troy Senek and Dan McLaughlin. If you want to get this podcast automatically, magically downloaded to your phone every time there is a new one, which should be every week, uh, you can subscribe on Apple or Spotify or Google or really whatever you want. We'll put them on all of the services. If we haven't put them on a service, email me. I'll make sure it gets on there and I'll see you next week. <laughs>